Today's video is sponsored by Squarespace. In 1942, a chilling encounter unfolded when the esteemed poet W.H. Auden ventured to pose an unorthodox question to a gathering of unsuspecting Sunday school children. With an unsettling uncertainty, he inquired, Do you know what the devil looks like? The room fell into a hushed silence. The children turned to look at one another, uncertain of what to say. His response pierced through the stillness, sending shivers down their spines. The devil looks like me. Aldridge explains that Auden ascribed a traditional belief that was particularly strong amongst Anglo-American Protestants, one which told of an insidious force which dwells within the core of humanity in, and entwined itself with our thoughts and could easily lead ordinary souls astray. Yet the children who looked up at Auden had no idea that his remark reflected a wound of personal anguish that was etched into his spirit. It was only a year prior that Auden himself had was overcome with this demonic spell in the darkness as he lay alongside his lover, Chester Coolman, who had but hours before admitted to his unfaithfulness and ended their relationship. These events led to the writer's thoughts teetering on the precipice of darkness and temptuous whispers of murder coursed through his mind. Corman awoke to the hands of his former lover clasped around his throat. Auden later confessed that he was in intention and almost in act a murder, claiming that he had discovered in person what it was like to feel oneself the prey of demonic forces. This was Auden's most fiercely personal encounter with the satanic powers of this world, and his determination to confront these powers both within himself and his society has led some critics to read his poetry as a kind of symbolic exorcism of the demons of the 20th century. But what overcame Auden that night? What cracked within his human psyche that drove him to wish to murder the man that he had loved for so long and destroy what he was once so deeply treasured and consequently destroy his entire life and his personhood in the process, irreversibly transforming himself from a man to a monster. For Auden, as it is for many, the devil was a metaphor, an abstract principle for trying to understand the overriding of the rational mind under uncharted social, political, biological and psychological pressures. For others, however, the devil is very real, a creature that which haunts every inch of the earth and every crevice of your mind waiting patiently for a hairline crack in the psyche to show itself. You see, he is the personification of all that is wicked, whatever wicked means to whatever community and culture that he is part of. He is the reason why an almighty God created a world with evil in it. But where did he come from? And how did he become an important feature amongst religions around the world, embodying suffering, evil, 
and death. Enter, dear reader, into the realm where reality entwines with myth. Within the library of dark pages and eerie epistles, ancient knowledge awaits, eager to be unearthed. Amongst dusty tomes and faded parchment, forgotten secrets stir, and untold tales resurrect. Venture forth into this labyrinth of words and ink, where the boundaries of your beliefs shall be challenged and chilling truths shall be exposed from the shadows. Welcome to my library, with all its twisted corridors, where the line between fact and fiction blurs and the whispers of the past lure you deeper into the abyss of mystery and macabre. Before we get into the rest of today's video, I'd like to take a moment to thank today's sponsor for making it possible, which is Squarespace. Philip Almond argues that the devil is literally and metaphorically the personification of the paradox of the heart of Christian theism. The devil is God's enemy and beyond God's control, but only because God gave the devil the freedom to rebel against him. Yet in many cases, he's also God's servant, usually always acting with God's endorsement. Because if he is God's creation, then the responsibility for the evil the devil does is ultimately God's. According to Christian theology, the devil is both God's enemy and his enforcer and servant. But the devil we're discussing here is one which only started to take shape in the first few centuries of Christianity. And there are two sides to the devil that we're familiar with. The Western idea of the devil, which developed beyond the origins of Christianity, and the idea of the devil, which existed 500 or so years before the Christian formation of evil. There are so many elements of the devil, or Satan, that it would be a huge disservice to cram his entire literary and cultural history and legacy into a single episode, so this podcast will discuss Satan and the devil across multiple episodes. In today's episode, we are going to look at the devil before Christianity, the one whose presence haunted the Dead Sea Scrolls eventually and the Jewish biblical writings. Over the series of episodes related to the devil, you will come to see the many different sides of Satan, and may even grow a fondness for a particular era of the devil. Spoiler, my favourite is the 15th century devil of classical demonology, but we'll get there in its own episode. The devil, or Satan, appears across Western traditions of Judaism, Christianity and Islam, but it didn't originate in any of these religious texts. The devil that we know today likely goes all the way back to the Persian Archimenid Empire, which began circa 550 BCE, to a demon who encouraged child cannibalism, regicide, and the slaughter of innocents. In early Iranian religion, Zoroastrianism and Zervanism, there is a figure called Araman, also known as Angra Mainyu, who is an evil spirit, or dark spirit in translation. This creature posited himself as the lord of darkness and chaos and blamed for all human strife and suffering. He existed in opposition to Spenta Mainyu, which is the good spirit or the bright spirit, also known as Ahura Mazda or Ormuds. 
Aura Mazda was regarded as the king of the gods and creator of the world in the early polytheistic Persian religion. Then, when the religion was reformed, circa 1500 to 1000 BCE, the monotheistic religion, Zoroastrianism, declared Aura Mazda as the one and only god. The story behind the birth of Zoroastrianism is an interesting one. The story goes that somewhere between circa 1500 and 100 BCE, a Persian priest called Zoroaster had a vision. He claimed that he was visited by a supernatural entity named Vahu Mana, which means good purpose, who informed him the earlier understanding of the divine was wrong. Vahu told him that the divinities that the people were worshipping were not gods, but emanations of a single divine, all-powerful being, Aru Mazda. Whilst the other gods disappeared from the picture, his enemy, Ahriman, remained. By the time of the Persian Archimedes Empire, circa 550 to 330 BCE, Zoroastrianism was the primary belief system, and the philosophical question about how good and evil could coexist in a world made by one good almighty god uh, came about. This is when the heretical sect of Zoroastrianism, known as Zervanism, rose to the challenge and posed an answer to the question. So there is no known founder of Zervanism, and no one can determine for certain when it developed. The earliest evidence we have of the cult of Zervan is found in the history of theology, attributed to Edemus of Rhodes, which was circa 370 to 300 BCE, and is cited in Damascius's Difficulties and Solutions of the First Principles, which was 6th century CE. Edemus, or Eudemus, I've heard it pronounced both ways, describes a sect of the Medes that considered space and time to be the primordial father of the rivals of Oromazdes of the light and Aramanias of the darkness. What we know is that Zervanism claimed that the god Zervan was the true supreme being of Lord of Infinite Time. Now, up until this point in religious texts, Zervan had only been a minor god uh, in early Iranian religion and a minor deity in Zoroastrian text, the Denkard. The Zervanists, however, claimed that Zervan gave birth to both Arua Mazda and Araman, who were twin brothers, uh, in a rather oxymoronic way. You see, according to the myth, Zervan, who was an androgynous god, prayed for a son and made sacrifices in the hopes of willing a son into existence. Now, um, slight oversight here by the ancients, um, but who was the god of infinite time and space praying to to get a god if they were the god of infinite time and space? Uh, it's rather unclear who they were making sacrifices to. Maybe to himself? No one knows, but maybe this shows you that there was a big plot hole in the origin text. Anyway, it just goes to show you that even the gods are always looking for answers to their own existence. Anyway, Zervan evidently answered his own prayers, and he was blessed with not one, but two sons, the twins of good and evil. 
Whilst the twins were in the primordial womb, Zervin announced that he will gift the first son who was born mastery of the whole world. Upon hearing this, one of the twins, Araman, kept himself out of the womb to take power of the world. Now, Zervin didn't like a cheat, so he decreed that Araman could have power over the world, but only for 9,000 years. And then eternal mastery would go to his twin brother, Ormuds, who was also known as Aromazda. Now, obviously, this story was told under the belief that the world was less than 9,000 years old, and thus we are living in a time where the presence of evil is still around, but it has a time limit. However, it was through this story of twin brothers, one good, one evil, that the Zervanists explained the presence of evil in the world, which was all made by a divine and righteous God. And this, dear reader, is where the devil was born. John R. Hinnells described Araman as, quote, the demon of demons who dwells in the abyss of endless darkness in the north, the traditional home of demons. Ignorance, harmfulness, and disorder are the characteristics of Araman. He can change his outward form to appear like a lizard, a snake, or a youth. His aim is to always destroy the creation of Aramazda, and to this end, he follows behind the creator's work, seeking to spoil it. As Aramazda creates life, Araman creates death. For health, he produces disease. For beauty, ugliness. All man's ills are due entirely to Araman. Now, Araman tested believers by whispering lies into their ears to make them doubt Aramazda, and the origin story of humanity is a particularly gruesome one due to his antics. You see, the first couple, according to the origin story, are Masha and Masha Yanag, who live in harmony on Earth until one day Araman tricks them into believing that he is actually the ruler of the world and that Aramazda is the enemy. With their belief in his lies, their lack of faith in Aramazda allowed sin to enter the world and the couple suffered for years. Along with the suffering came the inability to conceive children until one day they finally do. But because they'd lost all reason to sin, they eat their young child. The Hebrew Bible later offers a much milder version of this by swapping uh, a baby for an apple, which is a little bit more, you know, gentler. Araman never gains anything by lying and deceiving humans. He merely takes great pleasure in bringing chaos and destruction into their lives, as demonstrated by the story of him and Prince Zahak. Son of the kind and loving King Murders, Prince Zahak was a spoiled and entitled young man who made good friends with Araman after Araman appeared to him as a charming young man just like himself. Araman spent days whispering into the prince's ear, giving him dangerous and foolish ideas of power and status. One day, when the two young men were lounging around, Araman leaned over and whispered into the prince's ear, wouldn't it be so easy to kill your frail and elderly father? Just imagine you'd be king. You could control the entire empire and everyone would love you and admire you. 
Prince Ahak, drunk on the idea of power and status, followed his friend's advice and murdered his father. That was when his young friend disappeared. Months later, the now King Zahak was feasting off the spoils of his father's murder, including the wonderful meals and feasts that were created by the palace's mysterious new cook. The cook was capable of creating anything in King Zahak's wildest dreams, and the new king wanted to reward the magnificent chef with honours and treasures. But the chef declined them all, All I would like, the chef responded, is the honour of kissing you upon your shoulders, your majesty. But no sooner had the chef kissed the shoulders of the king, had the chef just vanished. And suddenly, snakes sprung from the king's skin where the chef had kissed him, all attached to his shoulders. In a panic, the king ordered that the snakes be chopped off, but every time the serpent chopped off the heads, new heads grew back. The king was at a loss of what to do when a new physician mysteriously arrived at the palace. He had the remedy to the king's ailments, but it wasn't an easy fix. You see, the only way to banish the snakes from your body, the physician told the king, is to feed the snakes human brains every day. If the king refused, the hungry snakes would turn on him and eat the king's brains instead. Desperate to save himself, King Zahak ordered human sacrifices to be sent to his palace to feed the snakes, and soon the terrified kingdom under Zahak's rule was running out of citizens. The reign of terror only ended when a blacksmith, Kaveh, who had lost 18 of his sons to the king's snakes, led an uprising against the kingdom. With the aid of the hero Faridun, King Zahak was battered by an ox-head mace, bound and taken to a cave on Iran's highest mountain, where he was doomed to hang in chains for all eternity. Now, the Zervans were not the only ones to write about the concept of evil coming from a being other than a divine god. Whilst we don't know when Zervanism and the story of the twin brothers were established, we do know that the earliest text to address the same problem, i.e. where did evil come from if God is divine, is the book of Job, circa 600 CE. It is here that humanity meets Satan textually for the first time. Though he receives very little airtime in the book of Job, Satan, well technically known as the Satan in the book, is the instigator of the divine wager, which plays a prime plot catalyst, and without it, Job would never have suffered or come into conflict with his friends. In this tale, Job is a wealthy and God-fearing man, with a comfortable life and a large family. When God asks Satan, the adversary, for his opinion about Job's piety, the Satan asserts that were Job rendered penniless and without family, he would turn away from God. So God is curious and gives Satan permission to take Job's wealth and kill his children and servants. And later in book two, he gives him permission to afflict Job's body with boils. Note that the Satan in this text isn't an evil creature, 
He's actually merely a loyal servant who is just doing the duties of God. He is deployed by God to test job, piety against the wager. There are two main traditions that have been conventionally applied to the interpretation of the Satan figure in the book of Job. The Satan in the tradition of the Hebrew Bible is the opposer. He opposes and tests human subjects, often at the behest of God, uh, like a prosecuting attorney. But the Job and Satan has also been associated with the Satan of the New Testament and the apocalyptic. And this Satan is the fallen angel who opposes God and by implication is objectively evil. Over time, Satan transitioned from the cipher for the principle of justice, pointing out the sins of others that God may somewhat have overlooked and potentially forgiven undeservedly, to then symbolise and oppose everything that God stood for. And this leads us to the proto-Satanic figures of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the evil spirits deployed by the apocalyptic theology of the essence, but those demonic beings deserve their own episode. Thank you so much for listening to Dark Pages and Eerie Epistles with me, Jinsu Dubois, the Lady of the Library. Today's episode was researched and written by me, and all citations and footnotes are included in the description box of the YouTube channel and in the show notes. The music was applied by Epidemic Sound. If you would like more content from me, you can find me on YouTube at The Lady of the Library, where you will also find links to my Patreon and newsletter and episode request form. Remember, dear listeners, as we delve into the realms of folklore, monstrous legends, wicked creatures and haunted chapters of history, you must keep yourself safe, as these dark tales hold dangerous and twisted allure. So stay bewitched, haunted, and forever curious. And remember, books save lives, so keep reading.